So Ali and Fatima, it's good to have you here and have a chance to talk a little bit about the Toni Morrison pieces we read for this week. Um, I wanted to just start off by saying a couple of words uh, about why, why I chose these pieces and, and things that caught my eye. And then, you know, I want to know from both of you sort of where you where you uh, found the material interesting or productive. Uh, for me, one of the things that the class has uh, explored in detail is questions of tradition um, and knowledge production. And one of the things we haven't really had a chance to focus on or talk about is the function of memory. But I think actually that question of memory, especially in somebody like Senghor, is really present. Right, The way Senghor is talking about oral traditions carrying over memory, that then, you know, part of those pieces is about the conversion of those into writing, but also for Ellison and Murray, the way uh, memory is functioning in sound to, to, to harken back to pasts, to harken back to ideas that precede, you know, multi-generationally uh, musical production. And so what I liked about the Morrison pieces was just an opportunity, give us an opportunity to sit uh, with just the question of memory, not the question of music, not the question of, of oral and written, but just memory itself and think about its function in relation to the imagination. And of course, things that we'll probably talk about around research and archives and um, you know what it means to look at documents from the past and infuse them with memory and imagination. And just sitting with those, I mean, aside from the fact, of course, that Morrison as a stylist and thinker is so completely compelling. Um, but it was really just a chance for us to sit with the question of memory and see where it takes us uh, in our conversations as well as our thinking. So I'm curious what you all were had in mind, what caught your eye when we were reading through and discussing these pieces. So I'm actually, I think that mostly because I'm in a course right now about um, autobiographics, the oh. the use of memory was really interesting, um, and the line between what fiction is and what autobiography is, because we last week read Kindred as autobiography, okay. and um, one of the questions that uh, Martha suggested to us was how are we reading fiction as autobiography and why this particular fiction um, mm -hmm. and I feel like in particular the site of memory was like a thesis statement for why we read Kindred as an autobiography um, so that was really what was like striking to me as I was reading this was writing the collective um, and the rememory and the act of memory as like an active an active thing rather than like a noun and a passive thing that you don't participate in yeah. mm -hmm. um, so really just the the question of autobiography in terms of memory and in terms of like the collectiveness of memory was really interesting to me. I want to ask uh, actually about that. I didn't know this. Um, so how, what were the sort of, you know, ways of posing that question of kindred as autobiography? Is is it something in, in, in Butler's uh, uh, writings, you know, reflections on her own process that makes a question about autobiography, or was this really like an interpretive strategy? It was really interpretive. It was, it really was just looking at Butler writing like the, and the thing that we talked about a lot was the use of the um, singular pronoun I and how that functions within this text and mm -hmm. how it doesn't feel singular. Um, but I feel like re-memory is such an interesting way to look at um, 
Kindred as an autobiography because the uh, because Dana is working on remembering like her past and her family and then one thing that was really um, nagging me when I read the book originally was the dismembering at the beginning and at the and the framing of the dismembering and her losing her arm mm -hmm. and I think that the rememory and the remembering that Morrison suggests really like clarified that for me yeah because it's interesting in that way Kindred actually starts to be both autobiography of, of Octavia Butler but also autobiography of African America mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. No, it's totally fascinating. I, it's one of those things I know Martha, and I'm like, I should talk to Martha. This is completely fascinating. But what about you, Fatima? Um, I just kept thinking about the chapter, Sites of Memory, uh, when you were speaking about last week with the episode on music, if Nina Simone, what would it mean to listen to Nina Simone and walk through Baltimore as a site of memory? Mm -hmm. And so... Now when I see sites of memory, I'm thinking about so many different things. I'm like, what, do, what would it mean to walk through um, different places? And that's when you connected it to Heidegger and you talked about the great temples. Mm -hmm. And it's like in the black intellectual tradition, when you walk through these places, the ghosts are still alive, as mm -hmm. opposed to Heidegger seeing it as dead. Um, and I was like, well, between like the music and the way we make the music alive and keep it going and that so I kind of was thinking about sites of memory with like music tradition and what we do to keep it alive and how the words will still mean things or how mm -hmm. they'll be like remixed and remastered um, today but the other thing that we didn't have a chance to talk about in class was <laughs> her chapter on uh, race and women mm -hmm. because that I had to sit with that paragraph where Morrison calls out the different types of feminists. <laughs> and she was like, the anti-feminist, the feminist, and the non-aligned. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, what do we do with this? Because it's, 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 it's very true. And she, she, calls, she, calls, she calls us out. And um, it made me think of the Barbara Christian piece where she also says, I believe in that chapter, like there is no one way to read like black literature, black women's literature, like it's not prescriptive. And this seems to be like a recurring theme, like it's not prescriptive, it's not prescriptive. But I'm really curious to know like your thought, I'm still processing because I feel like I'm the non-aligned feminist where like she, she describes it, I care, the, the pin-up doll, <laughs> you know, she's still dressed up and she's like looking at the anti, like you're, you're disrupting me and looking at the, the fan, like you're also like, you know, but she's still married and has everything. I was like, man, <laughs> the non-aligned humanist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of, the, one of the things I wanted from that piece was to see Morrison do that work of, you know, trying to think in that case of women in relation to women yeah. and how hard it is for women to think of themselves only in relation to other women rather than women thinking about themselves in relation to men, even in defining themselves as radical feminists, right? Mm -hmm. It's still this relationship with men and the way that, I mean, I think just to connect the two sort of on the spot, I think that's part of what memory is an attempt to do and rememory is an attempt to do is in terms of race and history and documents, whether they're, uh, you know, other fictional documents or, or, or non-fictional documents like, like memoirs and, and slave narratives. Um, 
that sense of like how can she right if I'm speaking in her voice how can I as Toni Morrison engage this black text as a black person mm -hmm. not in relation to white people but in relation to black people and that's actually like a thing I, you know I'm really gonna sit with this I'm gonna try to not make this whole conversation about Kindred and, and, and Martha's <laughs> and your course but that's so interesting because um, you know, I think that text, because it's about an interracial relationship, mm -hmm. it has a trauma in the past and present, sort of at the heart of it. But it is also Dana's attempt to really sort of address, and Octavia Butler's attempt to address uh, African-American history as an African-American and not in relation to white people, mm -hmm. but also the way white people have to be a part of it, right? I mean, I guess that gives away the book, but you know, she, has to, <laughs> she has to consent to this this unspeakable trauma in order to exist mm -hmm. right but at the same time it's it's it, that that i don't i don't want to call it narrowing because that sounds pejorative but that 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 focus and that non-contaminated space of memory work is to me so important in a world in which anti-blackness is not just exercised as forms of oppression but also as like a constant sense of measure and comparison that if we're going to talk about blackness, it has to be in relation to whiteness in some way. Talk about women, it is in relation to men in some way. And Morrison's commitment to getting rid of those comparisons and those entwinings to encounter, I don't want to say like the purity of gender or the purity of racial memory, but to get something closer to a focused sort of activity of that, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know if this this connects with you know with with, with what you were or, you know with, with, what either of you were getting from that that piece on on, on women, race, and memory because we you're right we didn't talk about it. I sort of hand waved at it, but um, it was the first on the list of the essays to read. So I assume everybody read it first, like me rereading, and then it's like how is this connected? And that's that connection for me. And I don't know if that, that stuff on, on different kinds of feminism, how, what sort of went through your mind when you were reading it, Allie? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I it's a safe did <laughs> struggle with that particular essay, but I think that hearing what you were saying and what you were saying it does sort of clarify it for me. Um, I think that framing it in relation to women's relationship with women without framing it in the relationship to men is what was was being said. But I think that where I struggled in particular was the passage on homosexual women. Yeah. Um, I think that that kind of caught me up and the it felt it felt a little um, like implying that lesbianism defines itself against men by nature mm. of it. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's what tripped me up about it. So I'm glad that we were able to talk about it though, because I think it is a useful piece. I think it's a useful piece, and it really, I think, does reflect its moment, mm -hmm. like in a not flattering way, yeah. right? Of still, and that's a very 70s, uh, a very 70s. Uh, cisgendered heterosexual uh, feminism mm -hmm. to really think about about lesbian feminists as as making a statement against men rather than mm -hmm. a statement about themselves, right? <laughs> um, and that that's a part that really does not age well, to put it lightly. Um, 
I also found in the piece, you know, you know, even rereading it and knowing where kind of where she's going, I always felt like a little bit of vertigo. Like, is she about to say something? Because she's mad about about these different kinds of feminism, right? And then that, and then when the mad sort of wanders into the this very short but important part about lesbian. Uh, f uh, lesbians and feminism and you know opposition to men then it's like oh where else is this gonna go this way um, but I think it poses that problem of how difficult it is it's interesting because I think she's trying to say how difficult it is to talk about women as women and not in relation to men but then when she talks about women in relation to women lesbians she makes it in relation to men. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's one of those things, it's, it was a talk, it was not an interview, but, it, you know, I imagine myself the interviewer to say, like, wait, wait, wait a minute, I, I thought we were, why are you doing that very thing? So, yeah. <laughs> but also I'm, I'm wondering, uh, or thinking also, Fatima, about what you were saying, you know, with this, uh, the previous uh, podcast piece where we were talking about uh, Nina Simone and, and song Baltimore and how that, it relates to questions of landscape and I think music is really affixed to that you know we do often think like this is you know there's like the Washington DC sound the Bronx mm -hmm. you know Memphis Jackson Nashville you know these the New Orleans like major music place uh, towns and cities have like the landscape has a sound attached to them sort of iconically that I think then we can sort of easily imagine ourselves back to sort of walking on Beale Street and hearing B.B. Mm -hmm. King, seeing Elvis buying a suit and <laughs> Albert King playing, and you know, just put together like a story about the music, mm -hmm. but also the way the music sort of can animate the landscape. And I think sound does that because we do walk around and hear sound. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about sort of moving that into literature Right, and I think about it this way, and then you know, wonder what you all think about this. But on the one hand, I think we don't often say, you know, uh, you know, where was this novel written, and what does it mean to be there? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think you just sort of the novel sort of is, speaks for itself, and that's part of what I think what fiction is magical about fiction in some ways is that it creates a sense of place and overlays its voice on it for you. Um, but at the same time, I think for, for a lot of scholars, if I was, say, writing um, uh, a book about um, Afro-Peruvians in Ica province and never went to Ica province, people would be like, Why, how could you write about this mm -hmm. just looking at documents and never even having walked like the cobbled streets of Ica, right? Or, you know, you need to spend time in Martinique and Guadalupe if you're going to write about Conde or Fanon or Chamoiseau. Um, so I think we have a kind of, my sense is there's a kind of, not an ambivalence, but a kind of wavering idea of like literature or place and the sounds and, and sort of smells of literature and what it would mean to place it in a place. Mm -hmm. But I think those sites of memory... Uh, all those reflections on sites of memory and rememory, they do bring me back to questions of landscape. And even like Kindred, the way the sort of astonishment at the southern landscape is so much a part of, of Dana's experience, but also her boyfriend's experience, whose name, Kevin? Kevin. Kevin. Uh, you know, even Kevin, but, you know, he's such a problematic character when he goes back in time, to put it lightly. <laughs> um, but landscape ends what up being really important. What else is he supposed to do? 
<laughs> I kept, I'm just like, well, you know, because he would have, like, it's like that one character that, like, goes back in time, and you're like, no, you're making it hard. <laughs> <laughs> he should never have said it was actually kind of fun. <laughs> was a, uh, yeah. I remember when my oldest uh, read it and he was like, that was cringy. I was like, it was more than cringy. <laughs> but uh, just thinking about, like, you know, does, does Morrison invite us to think about literature and its landscapes, like mm-hmm. actually being there in ways that um, maybe we don't habitually do? I think it's I think she, I think she does but especially when um, when she was talking about Hannah Peace and she said I didn't so much focus on her or about her as much as her surroundings mm-hmm. um, because I think and I was like yeah that's usually really good novels have super solid surroundings you know and she you just get lost in her words and I don't memorize things I really don't so I failed a lot of science classes <laughs> um, but she like she said that she wanted the reader to forget who was narrating and then be the narrator forget who was narrating and then like lose themselves in the scene of the plot and I was like yeah all the best novels do that the novels where you like you feel like you're like just observing and you're in the place and you're in the scene because she does a, She did the research, um, like Kristen said last night. She doesn't do research, but she did the research. On this, that's another one of the things she did. <laughs> you know, like that's a total trick, by the way. I don't do research. It's like really because you seem to know everything about everything. <laughs> but I think that takes um, proper skill and and artwork to, you know. And even I really enjoyed that she was describing her process of writing, like she would write as if this was the last sentence she was ever going to write. I'm like, I feel that way too. (laughs) Um, But focusing on how they said Hannah Peace, how they addressed her, um, the the nonverbal communication with that woman who she saw once in her life. Mm -hmm. And then she built a whole story around. And I'm like, we all do that to a certain extent. We meet someone who left a mark or didn't and then we like say oh this was probably their life and this is what they were doing and so we kind of I'm like oh that's but she does it in a way where she's like no let's actually do the whole environment um but this conversation is making me think of like putting novels and then creating a playlist and because it would be really cool to see like when when an author wrote something what was the music that was happening in that um, in their environment and in their time that mm-hmm. may or may have not, like, uh, they have absorbed it. Because I, I wonder if they absorb, like, the cultural that's happening around them. This is not super relevant, but <laughs> it, does rem- it does remind me. That's really funny because over the summer I reread Twilight, the Twilight series, <laughs> as, like, a palate cleanser. But, <laughs> but she talked about... Um, she would like publish the playlists that she listened to while she was writing each book because she said it had like such an important influence on like the way that each book came out. So not super relevant to the class, but I think it is actually. I mean, how did the novel seem different? Novels seem different uh, when you were listening to the soundtrack. The music that she listened to didn't seem like something that would have produced Twilight. Mm. And so listening to it gave more of like a depth 
and it also sort of brought back the fact that this was like it brought um the author back into it for me because i think i sort of dissociate twilight from actually being written by mm. somebody and so it it brings back in like a lived experience and also like it brought it back to the fact that like she wrote it when she heard the like my chemical romance song that was mm. written when he saw the twin towers falling on like a boat on the hudson and so there's this like way that you track not just like memory but also location and all of this goes into the publication of like a book that i think is i mean kind of not widely respected but yeah um my spouse uh, read uh, Twilight, I remember, and I was reading on Kindle, that didn't know how long they are. <laughs> was like worried that she was having cognitive <laughs> difficulties because she's a fast reader. Um, but you know, I read, um, I read one of them, might have just been the first one, I, I don't remember, it was years ago. But I do remember thinking as I was reading, as someone who went to college in the Pacific Northwest and went to college in Seattle, I was like, actually, you need to go to the islands to really have a sense of the mood of this. And that's that sort of, you know, I guess maybe that's sort of eco-criticism or, or sort of element or something. But I think, like, like for me, that raised, you know, the question of landscape and memory and rememory and the way we are as readers um, makes me wonder if sort of eco-critical approaches are always in some ways infused with memory, just not the way we tend to particularize memory of like my memories of my past. But the eco-criticism I think is like the way the land bears like a whole meaning in it and gives meaning to those things that are around it. And that we, if we know that, then we, we you know, like, she, like Morrison says about memory in the slave narrative, we give an inner voice to the ambiance, mm -hmm. right? Um, I mean, I just anecdotally, um, I think going to authors' houses or like their areas that, that is so revealing and interesting. And I do remember when I was in graduate school going to Faulkner's house, right, Roanoke. Mm -hmm. And I was already like a, a huge fan of Faulkner's weirder fiction. Um, you know, his conventional, more conventional stuff is interesting or whatever, but I really liked his, like, hard-to-read sort of acid trip stuff, Absalom, Absalom, and so forth. But I remember going in the house, and, you know, it's, it's a, like a museum, so it's, it's, it's laid out and really crafted in one way, but it's super simple and stripped down, and it just has these huge windows. And I felt like the sort of distance that so many of the characters have from the world sort of felt like I felt like you could feel the memory of Faulkner looking out the window and seeing his characters outside or his characters seeing you know like in the unvanquished seeing these sort of you know large groups of recently emancipated uh, enslaved people walking by in the night and you get this sense of in the place the way his memory is in that place and the way all of those writings they need that for it's not the inner voice of the character or the inner voice of the story because this is you know great fiction that's its whole commitment is to that inner voice but i think that what morrison is talking about when she talks about the inner voice of the enslaved and the slave narrative that that's what what memory animates I think that there is a sense in which the landscape has that animating force, but it's more ambiance, so we don't talk about it in the same kind of way. 
Um, and I'm just thinking, you know, I know Fatima, you know, your interest in, in Senegalese women's literature I, also makes me wonder, like, you know, what would it be like if I was writing on Senegalese women's <laughs> literature and I'd never been to Senegal? Yeah. You know, is there something about there it's not just landscape but it's like landscape and memory that's connected to the writing of these pieces you know not to put you on the spot about that but i think it's all it is a question for a lot of people who sort of write about different geographies it's like have you even been there and that to me is less like political like you need to spend time there and more maybe now in terms of memory and rememory right so if you're reading twilight you know the university should pay your way out to the to the islands off uh, Seattle, you know, even if it's uh, cl palate cleansing. I read sports journalism as my palate cleanser. So, unfortunately, I've been palate cleansing all semester. <laughs> I think it's important, though. I mean, even like reading, um, that was, there was one conversation I had on cannibalism, and she was having her her whole book this was, is a conversations in atlantic theory podcast yeah thank you <laughs> and she was having her conversation with um maris conde she's a martinique no guadeloupe she's from guadeloupe wow but she always write it's very yeah but she's from guadeloupe uh, she's a caribbean author and she told she told uh, this person writing this book she was like You've never been to the Caribbean? Well, I'm sorry, but you need to go. You're going to come to my house. Imagine an author saying, if you're going to do this work, you're going to have to spend some time. There's, or else just don't do it. <laughs> and, you know, she opened her house and she and she spent, like, years, well, back and forth. But Kwande opened her house. And there's something that I think that it does. Um, and the just reading about, like, whether it's the shoreline of seeing, like, the Caribbean shore... And the poems of um, Emre Césaire, I'm just like, yeah, that it must do something. It's something different. I can't think of, I wonder what other places we can think of together, like novels we've read together that, um, okay, this is one. We were in a class together on technical, not technical writing. It prepares you for how to teach college writing. And the all the class, all the articles were about the classroom and how do you teach the classroom was a setting that we're all aware of mm -hmm. so it was kind of like okay we can all relate to the setting of the classroom because we know what it's like to be in the classroom to be in front of the classroom so our discussions about the classroom were concrete right we can feel okay like tangible things you can do pass these things around but what would it be to to talk about teaching college writing and you've never been in a classroom before, it's gonna be super odd, you know? <laughs> it's gonna be like, okay, like how do we how do we do how do we talk about this? You know, it's um so I think I think I'll have to say like space is just really important in crafting how you're gonna go about things and just the memories of space. And even in those classrooms we talked about how the tables and the chairs at UMD were crafted in prisons. Mm -hmm. And so it makes even your pedagogical approach different. Um, so just, you, I feel like you have to be in a space and dwell in it and meditate in order to really get in tune um, with the text or what you're going to write about. Yeah, this a, a resonance, strangely, of Marx in this. 
you know, when Marx, I think part of what Marx is, especially the early Marx, is trying to get us to see is how in our everyday commodities, there's a human person, right? An alienated human person. That's our invitation to revolution. Um, but that, that, you know, part of, I think, his political meditations and arguments are about getting us to enact a version of, of rememory. Right, that the, the coat that you have on, you know, the shirt that you have on, the shoes you have on, you know, they have silence in them that can be reanimated by understanding, right? And I bring up in my classes every semester that everything we're sitting on was made by incarcerated men and women. And what does that mean? You know, and they, everybody looks really uncomfortable. And it's interesting because they'll fidget, which on the one hand is a f <laughs> fidgeting, right, is, is just a nervous thing that we all do. But it's also, I mean, I say you're all fidgeting. Think about fidgeting, you know, and then everybody sits perfectly still. I don't wanna, but I'm like, no, 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 the fidgeting is interesting because you're uncomfortable on the surface of a thing because somehow you've begun to, I mean, this is not the vocabulary I use with them, but you know, do the work of rememoring, mm -hmm. of seeing a voice inside there. And that voice is, you know, we work for pennies. Right? And by the way, you can't get anything purchased for furniture from the University of Maryland that is system, not just this college park. Uh, no system furniture purchases can be anything except prison labor. Yeah, when I when I came to this job, I wanted to spend some of my my money on you know like a a nicer desk than this one. I mean, it's perfectly fine, but it's like twelve year old Target desk, you know, that I assembled you know in a fit of rage you know <laughs> a dozen years ago. And so it's a little rickety, but they were like, no, you can have these incredibly heavy large desks, or you buy it on your own. But the way, you know, what it means, and I think also, you know, since we're right at, you know, in D.C., you know, the, the way when people say, you know, this building was built by slave labor, slave la enslaved laborers, like, what are we supposed to do with that? I think Morrison helps me give a language to what we're supposed to do with those political insights, whether it's Marx, whether it's about enslaved labor, whether it's encountering a novel that, you know, or, or sorry, a literary work like a slave narrative, that's a genre that sort of eclipses a voice. But also, again, like I said, I, I think back on, you know, all the ways that landscape does that work of memory, mm -hmm. right? And, and the, the interplay between literature and landscape. I think after reading Faulkner, I couldn't walk through Oxford, Mississippi the same way. Just like as a, as a Mississippi music fan, um, it made it really interesting to drive through the Delta or the Hill Country, you know, and all of these, these ways that now there's the name for that is these are sites of memory and, and it animates in certain kinds of ways that can be completely disconcerting, but also like illuminating and like real sources of, of knowledge. So what do you all take away from uh, the Morrison pieces? I mean, we all come to it with our own particular interests. You know, it's a, uh, that's, you know, it's a funny thing about the syllabus is it has so many different kinds of thinkers. It's really eclectic. So, uh, you know, no one's going to say, oh, all of this revolves around my own like, literary or <laughs> cultural studies uh, interests. But, um, 
you know, I mean, part of what we've been talking about <clears throat> is the way Morrison's uh, nonfiction is, has at least the possibility of this sort of expansive reach. So I'm curious where what you all are sort of taking away from Morrison or walking away with, with Morrison, maybe Fatima. I'm still processing a lot, <laughs> a lot of Morrison. I think that's that's number one. But the, one of the takeaways, my favorite from last night's discussion, um, which I highlighted just in her book, <laughs> was the discussion around interiority, um, because that that meant a lot. Um, just black life and interiority and the the difference between representing someone, giving them voice versus hearing them. Um, I really enjoyed that discussion. That that was really, that meant something for me as a way of approaching things. But I think it, what Morrison, she made me feel uncomfortable when she was talking about feminism, which made me take a look at how am I anti-feminist? And in what ways is my interiority or the silences that I have also anti-feminist in the way I approach my work? So that kind of made me look twice at what I'm doing, which I um, is it's it's needed. But she's also I think just after reading um, Ellison, and I was also reading Nina Simone in another class. So I can't stop thinking about um, location and music and and the narrative voice and what that what comes out of that. But um, there's just so much you can do with it, and of course, just the listening to her. Is, was nothing like reading <laughs> for the noble lecture that was which makes me think how did I read the other chapters now I'm just questioning like what voice did yeah so it's it's like what was my memory in reading her versus what was hers <laughs> so there was there were more questions which makes me just want to go back and read her again because I'm like I don't think I understood the first thing <laughs> So, um, yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked the listening to the Noel lecture because yeah. I wasn't sure. I mean, I love it and I think it's so interesting and she's so deliberate and yeah. slow and pauses. And I like how you hear people coughing in the background every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to shh. But the Ms. Morrison's talking. <laughs> the, the emphasis on prepositions. Because I would make mm, emphasis in words, but it would be a question, but she would be, there's one that was to versus from, and I was like, I would, I, my mind, I would not do that. Um, so it's, it's just very interesting to hear the author, because where they emphasize is going to tell you where to pay attention to, because when you're reading, you're emphasizing what, what you're going to see. Um, so that, that was really interesting for me. <laughs> Yeah, I also really loved listening to it. I read it really fast, and I think that there's really something to be said about like this being something that has to be like listened to and slowly. Mm. And the way that she speaks so slowly really like allows you to sit like in what she's saying um, in a way that I don't think that I did when I read it. Um, which I, lo I loved it when I read it, but it was just a totally different and a really moving experience to listen to it being read by her. Um, I also really, really loved what you were saying about hearing, hearing through literature um, rather than giving voice to. That's something that I think that I've subconsciously like struggled with, the, like giving voice to. And the idea of hearing just animates literature for me in a way that, like, 
I hadn't thought about before and it takes it from sort of a dead dead object and a dead thing that you're reading to something that has so many memories woven into it and I think that that's what was really striking for me about reading Morrison was this idea of the like the memories and the silences and the community that goes into writing literature um, I've been really interested in community in in literature like recently and I think her writing did such a good job of and such an intriguing job of complicating that calling attention to that so that's really what was striking me yeah so I um, in some ways sort of repeating sort of things that, that you all took away from it which as a as a as a teacher is always satisfying when it's like oh okay so the things I was hoping would connect connect um, but one of the things maybe this is like my final thought is you know the 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 relationship of memory to reading and the way that impacts hearing rather than giving voice. I, I really like that because it's the activity of, of our, that's demanded of us by Morrison to, to bring memory to our act of reading, but that that memory act in reading or that memory, the presence of memory in reading is not our sort of imperial force, right? We are not that, we're not like entering literature, right? It's rather a, a way of having like a, a bridge, but a bridge in the way that, that Heidegger talked about it in Building Dwelling Thinking. So remember he says the br bridge makes a locale. I feel like Morrison is saying, you know, memory is this bridge that makes, that, that brings you to the location of the, of the novel. And the way that puts a responsibility on us as readers be properly prepared to read mm -hmm. I find really interesting and compelling and you know, it just sort of stops me in my tracks because as you were saying you know that that you know both of you were saying like when you hear her reading her Nobel lecture versus you know me or, you know both of you reading it the way the pace is different these emphases are different so different on prepositions or a pause or a little high note mm -hmm. You know those. You know those are those moments where it's like we get to see that work of memory in her own encounter with her own text, and are reminded that we have to be prepared to read, and that that's a that's a responsibility as readers because memory is a really uh, precious thing. It's vulnerable, right? Because it can be distorted. It can be uh, instrumentalized. You know, we can, there's so many unethical ways mm -hmm. to deal with memory. And to bring that to a novel, it's not only the ethics of how we deal with memory, but also the ethics of how we deal with the novel. But she's laid out, I think, this very challenging path around what it means to then enter into the novel as one who hears, but also one who engages memory as a way into the novel, not letting the novel just sort of hold our hand through memory. And also the way it makes me go back and read the things that I read. Mm -hmm. You know, not just her work, which is so concerned with memory, but the way memory does and doesn't function in some ways. When I, um, when I do, you know, when I'm reading, you know, W.B. Du Bois's birthday was yesterday and I was reading a bunch just sort of in recognition of his, of his birth. And I just was struck by, you know, having read Morrison, like of my own memories of New England 
which is where he's from, is this such a New Englander in these moments. And that, like, he's such a New Englander in this moment was important because, not because it's an observation about his biography, which is probably how I would have thought about it if I hadn't spent the week reading Morrison again. And now I'm like, no, this is the way my own memory of place is sort of entering into the text in a way that's trying to get a little bit more intimacy with Du Bois's memory work. And in that way, become a more responsible reader who hears rather than in an imperial way, sort of attributes voice or creates voice. So anyway, thanks for making the time. It's a Friday afternoon and, uh, you know, um, I appreciate you guys coming into the office so we can actually use this microphone I paid too much money for. <laughs> so thanks so much and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>